Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the African American Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to welcome our guest today, Dr. Brandon J. Manning. He will be talking about his most recent book, Played Out, The Race Man and 21st Century Satire. Dr. Brandon J. Manning is an assistant professor of Black literature and culture in the Department of English and a core faculty member in the Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies Department at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Manning. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, to get started, um, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about your book. Just kind of boilerplate, you know, what's your book doing? What's it about? Who's it for? Yeah, no. um, So one of the things that I that really struck me kind of growing up throughout. um, I've always been drawn to uh, humorous and comedic spaces. Um, Really the ways uh, that black humor and play uh, in these various spaces have always been a way of thinking about black culture, black history, um, black traditions. Uh, And as I was going through graduate school, one of the things that, uh, really I, I was in awe about was kind of the way that men seemed to gravitate towards the spate and were both hyper visible and sometimes invisible in terms of their uh their mode of expression uh, and and so part of what the book is is attempting to do is trying to show precisely what the stakes of black men engaging uh humorous and in particular satirical spaces uh what the weight of that and expectation of that is from a kind of broader uh, societal view, but then also how they're able to leverage some of that, uh, that, that visibility, uh, in order to, uh, play with and dismantle some of our misguided notions, both around race, but also around gender and black masculinity in particular. Great. Great. Well, one of the things I was sort of struck by as I was reading your book was your sort of very lengthy introduction. I really loved um, the genealogy you provide of sort of black male comics, of black satirists, and sort of thinking about that as a kind of ongoing cultural tradition. And so what I'm curious about um, is just sort of why the 21st century? You said you sort of say in your book that you're limiting um, your study to the 21st century. So I'm curious about sort of why that moment especially, and then why men, and then why satire? And you've already sort of started broaching that, but I wonder if you could draw that out a bit more. Yeah, that, there was something that was really interesting. Uh, I am a, a, a lover of African-American literary canon and cultural production more broadly. Uh, and one of the things that I found that was particularly interesting was right around the time, or I should say on the heels of, of Black women writers like Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, uh, Gail Jones, that era, that kind of second renaissance, if you will, <clears throat> that uh, on the heels of that, I think, one, there were Black uh, male writers that were kind of grappling with the space uh, that they felt like they had or did not have. And then um, directly after that, there was, I'd argue, this explosion of Black satirical and humorous kind of more comedic type speech, uh, wherein uh, these writers and cultural producers, uh, and again, this is both in terms of of literature, uh, the book takes on both novels as well as sketch comedy, uh, and references a, a good deal of film as well. Uh, but that that these kind of cultural producers uh, kind of leaned in, if you will, on a very kind of cerebral uh, uh, meta text, but also just a way of just being, um, I don't know, uh, for a lack of better words, <laughs> uh, being you know, witty in a particular way, but that also still like renders and reads as very kind of with these kind of masculist, masculinist undertones. Um, And so uh, it was a space for, uh, I think, initially black men to retreat to. Uh, And then 
Um, and, and then they were able to kind of play in that space a little bit more uh, once that once that had kind of already been in the work. But yeah. And, and here I'm thinking particularly of like Ishmael Reed, uh, a number of other folks that I cite, especially in the introduction and, and especially in response to uh, like the work of Alice Walker and the color purple in particular. Yeah, well, I definitely want to want to talk about that more. I was very interested in your sort of framing and situating and contextualizing um, black male satire sort of opposite the black women's renaissance. Um, and we're going to talk about that a bit more. Um, before we get there, I'm, I'm curious, just returning to your genealogy, I'm curious about whether or not the character of black satir- satire changes. And so one of the things I was struck by is you do begin sort of early, right, with someone like Charles Chestnut, um, and then you sort of name many, many figures, and we get to Ralph Ellison, who you identify as a kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, um, a kind of father of, of contemporary black satire. And so I'm curious about that, just sort of, Ralph Ellison and sort of his role in sort of facilitating some of the shifts that we see in Black cultural production, Black literature, sort of broadly, um, especially in Black male writing. I'm curious about that. And then I'm also curious about this sort of bigger question of, you know, across that genealogy, is the character of Black satire changing? Are we just seeing uh, the same mode respond to different, you know, historical circumstances? Right. Right. That's a great question. So I I think one of the things that definitely shifts and changes, right, Uh, when we think early on, um, Chestnut, not so much, but uh, definitely in terms of George Schuyler, there's a kind of way that um, we get this kind of broad undertaking and critique of what society, social, political, cultural ramifications of any particular moment are. And I think Ralph Ellison and his attention to the individual, uh, to a kind of existential surreal uh, surrealism where, where we get a, a focus on the individual and in particular, their proximity to these larger uh, assumptions and groups of, of blackness. Right. Um, and I think that the unnamed protagonist and um an invisible man in many ways is a kind of precursor to a number of the kind of characters that we see in uh, Paul Beatty's uh, novels and Percival Everett's work, uh, et cetera. Uh, and while Perso- uh, while uh, Ralph Ellison does uh, a good bit of that work, um, there are a number of other folks that I think similarly uh, kind of build out that kind of line. Um and here in particular, I'm thinking about Fran Ross's Oreo. I think that it does a, um, you know, although I, I focus a, a bit on kind of masculinity um, and manhood more broadly in the book, that uh, Fran Ross's text does a phenomenal job of thinking about um, one's proximity to these kind of larger uh, cultural pieces and, and what uh, really like uh, Ellison. Um, right. It's, it's uh, Daryl Dixon Carr that talks about the relationship between uh, contemporary African-American satire and the picaresque novel tradition and, and really thinking about these uh, protagonists as these kind of picaros, these folks on quests trying to figure out in, in almost very episodic ways how they can navigate essentially contemporary race relations. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things I really liked um, was your sort of attention to uh, I think you call it the neo picaresque tradition in black letters. And I just, I really love that because I don't know that I've heard that about very often um, being used to describe sort of black satire, black humor. And so one of the things that I'm curious about just kind of circling, circling back a bit is your sort of contextual situation and framing of sort of black satire. And so on one hand, you sort of identify a strain, a sort of common strain in, in black men's satire, especially in the eighties and nineties, that's antagonistic to uh sort of black aesthetics that are common to women's fiction. And so I'm curious, um, but you're also identifying at the same time a kind of emergent strain in black satire of black male vulnerability, of concern with black interiority, sort of et cetera. And so I'm I'm curious, this is the first question, I have a second question, they're all kind of related, but I'm curious on the first hand of um, whether or not we see sort of black male writers sort of not only sort of being antagonistic to certain kind of 
sort of thematic concerns, certain kind of um, aesthetic deployments, which they are seeing as stereotypes, but also sort of learning some of the lessons too from sort of Black women's literature, right? This sort of being satire, perhaps being, and this seems to be what you're arguing, um, Black men's kind of interior turn and thinking about the ways they might be indebted to a Black woman's renaissance. So that's one question. And then the second question is, you know, you've used this word already in the interview, you used the word uh, metatext. You call uh, you call black satires kind of cerebral metatext, and then you're also sort of thinking about sort of the picturesque, and these things are you know they are traditional elements, traditional elements, but they are common elements I'll say of postmodern writing generally. And so this is also a period where we're seeing sort of Anglo-American tradition of satirical writing take off, and we're seeing that Anglo-American tradition of satirical writing also cha- uh, change. Um, prior definitions of satire as a genre and mode. And so I'm just curious about, you know, these Black writers, these Black uh, sort of performers, whether or not we could situate them in a broader cultural field, um, whether or not some of the tendencies we see them taking up are are entirely African-American or if they have an indebtedness to other sources. And then also this sort of just, I'm curious about this relationship that you're drawing between sort of black women and black men um, and their writing simply because, you know, on one hand, I do see, I agree with you and I see black men, there is this sort of misogynist strain, but on the other hand, they're clearly responding to shifts in African-American literature, even as they have concern about the ways that black women are deploying certain kinds of tropes generally. So it's a big question. But I'm, I'm yeah, curious yeah. to dig no, into the sure. book. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, and I appreciate such a sincere engagement. Um, I think one of the things I think you're absolutely right um, in your first question or the first part of the question, wherein uh, I see black men, and that's part of the reason you asked earlier why, why the 21st century, right? Um, where I do see black men, uh, I think it's at that moment have kind of learned some of the lessons of that second renaissance uh, and thinking about the ways that um, black men, you know, can see and think, right. It's, it's black feminism that allows for black men initially to think along the terms of masculinity, right. Especially in the early to mid part of the nineties. Right. Uh, And um, I think once that has kind of sat and, and coalesces a bit, then by the time we get to the late 90s and early 2000s, there's a clear kind of way that uh, Black men, I think our uh, Black male writers uh, and folks taking up masculinity are much more sincere, well, not sincere, but uh, are more intentional about their approach around masculinity itself um, and are much more, uh, like you said, have that kind of interiority and self-reflexivity around it. Um now for the second question, um, can you remind me quickly? Uh, what was that um, second question? Thinking about uh, an Anglo-American tradition of postmodernist writing, um, you use the word metatext. You referred to the sort of picaresque. Both of these are sort of staples of postmodernist writing, and I'm thinking about sort of the popularity, basically all Anglo-American male writing during the 80s and 90s. They're satires of a kind, um, and so I'm just curious about how black male writers sort of fit into that world. Because, you know, once you start digging into the biographies of some of these black male writers, like many of them studied under some of these like white postmodernist writers, like Percival Everett, most, um, you know, most especially, you know, he's like trained by Robert Coover. And, and so I'm just curious about how we might fit these sort of black male writers into that tradition if they don't fit or, you know, I don't know how you're thinking about it. Yeah, no. So I definitely feel like they are a part of a kind of broader kind of move towards um, some of these kind of postmodern kind of approaches uh, to writing. I I do think that there are a a, a few key differences. Right. Um, So whereas, for instance, a notion like pastiche um, may lose its uh, may lose some of its kind of significance, right? Um, that within a black satirical tradition, you know, I'd like to think that that pastiche, uh, kind of always has a kind of resonance that doesn't allow it to be just this empty signifier. Um, that said, I definitely, uh, uh, agree to some extent that I think that part of the reason why, um, 
black male satirists are celebrated in the ways that they are is precisely because of their ability to take up and uh, um, evoke in many ways the broader kind of literary tradition. And I think that's happened um, kind of throughout the literary canon in a particular way, right? Um, that I, I think is, uh, that manifests itself in this way, in this, in this, in this current moment. Um, and then the, then, then the last question in terms of the relationship to, to, to black women itself, um, can you remind me of that question? Oh, well, I mean, I think, I think you got it. I mean, the, my question was basically around just sort of thinking about this sort of culturally, discursively, you know, where do we locate sort of black male satire? And I guess I'm interested in this question because, you know, sort of black men are for the most part left out of those monographs that take up Anglo-American satire of the period. They are left out of it. And yet it's hard to read sort of Ishmael Reed and not think of Thomas Pynchon. You know, I mean, they're just kind of really hard things to think about. And so on one hand, I'm curious if there's a, a kind of distinctiveness, and you've begun to answer that question, um, if there's something in Black male satire that makes it sort of resemble Anglo-American satire, but is nevertheless a sort of different sort of thing, a different kind of literary development. And then I was just also, and you already answered this question, you know, just interested in and if we can think about the relationship between the Black women's renaissance and sort of Black male satirical writing as sort of being, as containing more than antagonism. And, and yeah. yeah. No, and, and I, d- I definitely think it, it contains more than, than antagonism, excuse me. But um, I think that as, even as those lessons for Black masculinity and Black manhood and a kind of moment uh, of being self-reflexive, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that there was space in the introduction in particular uh, to attend to the ways that 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 a lot of that is uh, a kind of byproduct or um, part of an evolution that would that initiated uh, through this kind of antagonism, I think was it, it's important to, to recognize and cite. And even uh, someone like Percival Everett, whose work I absolutely um enjoy and love right uh uh, and i think is precisely doing exactly what you're saying Brittany, in terms of the complexity around like uh and here i'm thinking about the the novel erasure where he's able to kind of make this critique of the publishing industry and the way that um like even more broadly blackness gets essentialized into these kind of small uh pieces that that don't really reflect the fullness of black life and experience um that even as he does that uh, and is doing that through uh, his kind of critique in the, in the text of Juanita Mae Jenkins, um, those critiques uh, still very much evoke this kind of, it's a part of a broader critique, right? And, and though he is doing a great job of, <clears throat> of showing where uh, his ire is towards the publishing industry, um, it, it still uh, has these kind of larger reverberations that um, harken back to to the treatment of, of Alice Walker and the color purple. Um, but yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So one of the things I'm curious as we sort of move, you know, more into thinking about your individual chapters before we get there, I really liked your pairing of novels and, and sketch comedy. And I wonder the sort of this period that you're um, sort of focusing on, you, you kind of focus on the eighties, nineties, even as you're sort of concentrating on materials that were written and produced in the 21st century. Um, and so I see them as sort of tandem developments, right? And so I'm curious if you're seeing sort of shared aesthetic tendencies across these two forms, which I don't know are generally, I don't think they're generally thought together. And yet, if you read, you know, often when I'm teaching these novels, for example, like the example I give, I taught Oreo, it's like, I compared it to Family Guy in the sense that it's willing to have an aside that's a joke that's all its own, and then sort of flash back to the narrative. And you either get that aside or you don't. Um, and so I'm curious if you, if you, in doing this work, saw links between you know, just the sort of aesthetic operations of sketch comedy and novels and satirical novels of the period? Yeah, no, I, I definitely did. I mean, so one, the the pairing of the two, I think is in part um, meant to really highlight the, the, I would argue, the two kind of most popular spaces where uh, Black male satirists kind of take up, right, the novel and, and sketch comedy. Um, 
And did one think about, right, the kind of broader neoliberal, white uh, liberal kind of pressures of what it means to, to, to be satirical in these spaces? Um, and then two, to your point, um, you know, the, the project really began out of what was a real interest uh, for uh, the Chappelle show uh, and Aaron Magruder's uh, uh, animated television show, right? Um, familiar with the with the syndicated editorial cartoon um, and love it. But as the cartoon show uh, was on Cartoon Network, I was like, oh my goodness, like this is great. I wish that people like, what do blinders look like? Or like, can there be a black parental code on the television? Right. Um, because I was like, what does it mean for uh, a number of different people to, uh, to enter into this space without the kind of historical cultural knowledge? Uh, and then what are they left with? Right. And so thinking about satire kind of along these multiple registers uh, and a kind of unintentional investment of being okay with being misunderstood, right? Um, I feel like that's something from the outset that that's, that has to happen. And as I began to dig deeper into uh, Dave Chappelle and his uh, departure from The Chappelle Show, thinking about precisely what his show meant in a moment that was moving towards a kind of post-network moment, uh, and in particular, the pressures of him to create a particular type of commentary in a vein, right? That really moved away from, you know, uh, one, the, 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 the making the art and the funny uh, without uh, almost kind of care about how it's being taken up, right? Uh, and then two, what does it mean for him to be thrust in uh, to this kind of role of a, of a pseudo race man? I think uh, in ways that really like echo maybe what, Dick Gregory does, you know, in the, um, in the sixties. Right. Uh, but that, that kind of gets kind of foisted upon him and in, in ways that, and I don't know how much space we have to talk about all of this, but, uh, that he kind of, uh, unfortunately takes up and runs with as of late. And I'm thinking about his, uh, his Netflix special. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of at the center of, uh, of the, uh, of the book, especially in terms of thinking about sketch comedy and novels and stand-up as much as it gets related to in there is that um, black men always seem to be uh, at the center of these spaces um, that uh, the black male comedic voice is meant to assuage uh, American racial tensions as much as it is meant to be uh, kind of didactic in, in, in a particular way, right? And so uh, as much as we have kind of comedians who recognize that uh, part of, of what humor has to offer uh, is to kind of bring levity to situations, it's also um, for particular humorists and satirists, they recognize that that comes with um, an obligation that they feel like, uh, you know, that they're centering their own personal, uh, um, sense of humor, uh, and thought process and meaning making and world making. Uh, and in that it, it does its own kind of work. And so, so yeah, so that's, that's why I kind of paired the two, uh, together. Um, and what I feel like are the kind of overlap between the two, but, you know, by the time we get to a, a sketch comedy show like Key and Peele, um, it's interesting, right? Because they're kind of able to make that show without a lot of the same kind of, did you see this week's episode, right? And everybody is only, uh, everybody is primarily consuming Key and Peele's uh, sketches in these kind of bite-sized, just sketch by sketch more. So at that point, right? Um, and it doesn't become this kind of broader national conversation, maybe in the same ways that there was this kind of weekly Thing around Chappelle show. Yeah, no, it's so interesting how you've how you've narrated that. I want to I want to turn to to your first chapter, but before we do, I mean, after what you've said, I'm curious about you know whether or not you're thinking about and and I think you are um, of satire as a transitional form for black novelists and for black entertainers navigating the post civil rights moment. And if you are, I'm curious, just kind of quickly, I guess. I'm curious about why you think satire lends itself to that 
to that role because that's not the role it's played historically in black cultural production. And so, but just the way you just now spoke of it is as this kind of mode that can tolerate ambiguity and can tolerate multiple audiences and can communicate multiply and can perhaps communicate across barriers and from major stages. And so I'm just, I'm curious about what you think about it as a sort of transitional form, um, post-civil rights and, and how that might be playing into some of what you're saying. And then again, I'm, I'm interested in whether or not that, that makes that category more capacious, because as we turn to the Beatty chapter, we're going to have to be thinking about you know, Paul Beatty's comments, which you include, where Paul Beatty's like, you know, I don't really write satire. He does, but he's always, he does. He's wrong. He writes satire. He always says this, you know, I don't write satire. Um, and so I guess the first question is just, is it is it a transitional mode, you know, after yeah. civil rights? Yeah, no, I, I think definitely, you know, um, uh, enjoying Mark Anthony Neal's like post-soul babies. I think that there are ways that, um, and even Trey Ellis's uh, new black aesthetic that that satire lends for um, one uh, a particular kind of newness, but right that it's uh, pithy wittiness can do both an intergenerational thing, but also a kind of on the level uh, landscape kind of move in terms of thinking intergenerationally about how black folks are, are differentiating themselves um, both in the present and in relationship to kind of past iterations of blackness. And so um, I think it most certainly is, and, and in part why we see this kind of explosion uh, of it in this 90s, uh, early 2000 moment. And, it, you know, uh, a lot of the, I think the book initially was going to really think through what that early 90s moment looked like, right? Um and maybe extend some of these conversations around masculinity to, you know, Rodney King, the Million Man March, to, to all of these like major moments, right? Uh, uh, you know, the Senate confirmation hearing of, of Clarence Thomas and him talking about uh, kind of high tech lynching, right? There, there are all of these ways um, that I think that satire um, kind of more broadly lends itself to one, acknowledging what that looks like, and then two, um, being able to kind of create its own space where it grapples with its own thing, right? Uh, you brought up Beatty, uh, and I'm I'm always left with I think you know one of the most powerful scenes from Beatty's novels is uh, in White Boy Shuffle, where the careening uh, Wonder Bread truck you know falls uh, in what is a, a kind of recreation of the uh, of the '92 uh, LA riots and uh and you have this like moment of quote unquote violence wherein these young men uh you know pick up these pillowy loaves of of bread and hit the truck driver with right uh clearly a way of evo- uh of evoking uh this very visual moment from the LA riots but that um he's able to do that through a kind of lens that both evokes um the kind of rawness uh of uh, of black folks, of racialized violence, of these kind of moments uh, of resistance and response to it, um, uh, but also do it in a way that um, thinks through, you know, the multiple layers uh, and registers of of where people are uh, in uh, in that late '90s, early 2000 moment, um, uh, and do so in a way that you know the imagery is like you know, almost ridiculous as much as it is simultaneously very serious. You know what I mean? And so uh, I, I think satire, I think, captures precisely the moment of like, especially that generation post-civil rights that, uh, that that's in, in, interested in in blurring what some of those lines are and, and distinguishing themselves from their, uh, from that previous generation. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's really great. Um, so, just sort of transitioning to thinking about your first chapter, you know, I really loved all of the sort of conceptual terms you mobilize. We have sort of nihilism and striving and then thinking about a kind of unmitigated blackness. And all of that is sort of anchoring your first chapter and your exploration of, of Paul Beatty and the sellout particularly. And I'm curious, I'm curious just if you could talk about all of those terms and the work that they're doing. But 
I'm also curious about a kind of bigger question, which I also often put to my students is sort of whether or not sort of Du Bois's concept of double consciousness is still sort of anchoring Black life, if that's still the sort of if that's the primary mode that sort of black people are psychologically experiencing their blackness. And if it's not, you know, kind of what that means for humor, right? Because so many early um, theorizations of, of black humor sort of rely on this idea of double consciousness. And that's where the humor springs from, right? The incongruity between my understanding of myself and however else the world might perceive me. Um, but with you identifying sort of striving as being this sort of important aspect of sort of black neoliberalism, I wonder if you think that that changes, if in the 21st century, sort of what anchors humor, what produces various kinds of incongruities is a different sort of relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that's, that's really interesting um, about, I think, Du Bois in this moment, uh, as well as uh, the way that Beatty's text uh, seems to enunciate or, or give space to a different kind of uh, articulation of blackness is that um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, we're in a moment wherein we can be extremely attentive to um, the demands on our time, on our body, on our psyche. Um, and I think that part of what that chapter uh, is really invested in doing is thinking about precisely what the mental toll uh, and physical tolls of of all that like uh, laboring does right um, and so uh, it's interesting to think about and I think one of the things that I, I pulled from in 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 this chapter in rereading Du Bois in this way was the way that it was just uh, it was it was nonstop right like there there is no you know there's there's no stopping it uh, and that blackness gets tied to you know, even more, because I think you're absolutely right, right? Like when I'm teaching double consciousness, I'm talking to my students like, hey, what are the legs that this has here? Um, you know, are there other valences uh, that we add to this? Uh, and and yeah, but, you know, rereading this, especially thinking through one, the kind of the narrative of racial uplift and what it means and how it get, ends up getting taken up by this kind of broader configuration of the race man is that it is never ending. Um, and that uh, almost, you know, whether you want to or not, you kind of always have to be laboring on behalf of the race in this way. And so I think in terms of this contemporary moment, um, what's interesting is to think about, you know, one, what does the end of that look like? And two, for Black men in particular, who uh, there are they have to kind of resist this this narrative of needing to be the race man. What does doing nothing look like, right? Like what does stepping back um, and taking a pause or a reset, what does that um, culturally, theoretically look like? Um, and, I, and I think that uh, Beatty's text, The Sellout, um, in multiple ways kind of offers up uh, a side of what that looks like. Yeah, I wonder if you could say more about, just for folks who maybe haven't read the book, um, more about how you're sort of mobilizing those two terms in tandem. So your book, uh, this chapter, the first chapter sort of starts out and you say that, you know, sort of Du Bois's sort of concept of striving sets in motion a definition um, sort of that's anchored in black express black male expressive culture of the laboring body as the primary site of black humanity. But then on the other hand, you say that, you know, you're sort of working with black nihilism, which you say is a sociocultural site, a political expression that upends the metric of using the race man to legitimize black humanity. And you're turning to Paul Beatty to kind of make sense of how both of these sort of um, cultural developments, longstanding cultural developments um, exist together in tension. And as you say, the 90s and the, and the 2000s. And so I wonder if you could just say a bit more about those concepts, because they do seem to me um, incredibly important. And I, you're, you engage with Erica Edwards a bit. And I'm always sort of interested in, I'm always sort of interested in sort of Black male writers pointing to the vacuum that sort of opened up post-civil rights where they can no longer be a sort of representative novelist and speak on behalf of the race, but pointing to that void as a way to nevertheless fill it. Um, and so, so that tension is there for me. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about just those two terms and maybe how you see them being resolved or not even necessarily resolved, but taken up in a complex way in, in Beatty's fiction. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, I'm also, um, you know, remembering Cornell West uh, in the opening to like Race Matters, where he talks about the meaninglessness, right? Uh, 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 as a kind of cautionary tale of what this, you know, early 90s, mid 90s moment looks like, especially for Black uh, youth in the inner city, right? And thinking about how uh, those conversations around uh, meaninglessness and kind of emptiness uh, are also go along with uh, a kind of cultural, social, renewed energy um, in uh, Black young men, right, in these same spaces, right? Uh, and so for me, those conversations uh, happen uh, kind of simultaneously. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that's very interesting about uh, about Beatty's novel, right, is that through the protagonist and his relationship with his father, right? He feels like he has been uh, kind of summoned in, in the way that maybe a, a lot of Beatty's protagonists feel, right? Um, that there is a kind of weightiness to their existence that they're trying to grapple with, right? Um, and, and yeah, and so, you know, it's interesting to think through um, one, uh, the protagonist and his relationship to uh, kind of his community. What does his uh, ability to respond to what he feels like injustices are, right? How maybe um, problematic, for a lack of better words, uh, some of those attempts may be in terms of him, for those of you, uh, you who don't know, right? The sellout uh, begins in part and, and the protagonist feels he is a sellout in part because he reinstitutes uh, segregation on some level um, for his community and also, uh, um, uh, I, I don't know, is, is like a, maybe a de facto uh, uh, slave owner, for a lack of better words, um, uh, in terms of uh, an older friend of his. And so, so yeah, and I mean, I, I say that with all kinds of, you know, italics and, and quotation marks, because, you know, uh, it, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the narrative, uh, you know, it, through Beatty's genius, uh, offers these things up as as somewhat common sense solutions to, to, to the problems that his community has. And so, yeah, no, I, I feel like it, it very much is indicative of one uh, this kind of call and need and the pressures of thinking about what, uh, you know, I'm happy you pointed to Erica Edwards, this kind of push and pull towards Black charisma uh, on behalf of, of Black men, um, whether they know what they're doing or not, right? Um, which is what I think Beatty so uh, often offers up. Uh, and then, you know, if we have this kind of dialectic and this this push pull between the voice uh, and this side of unmitigated blackness as Beatty kind of advances in the novel, uh, I think part of that is around a kind of fear and concern uh, in the '90s, wherein folks are, I think, attributing violence and uh, drug culture and a number of other things that they feel like are these kind of social uh, issues to uh, our proximity to that Du Boisian sense of striving, to that collective sense of racial uplift, you know, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thinking here about like Cosby's pound cake speech uh, on Morehouse's campus, right? And, and there's as much as it is a kind of 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 kind of class dynamic. The, these moments are classed in particular ways. It's also in terms of their relationship and proximity uh, to to the civil rights movement and to this kind of collectivism uh, that that um, I don't know thinkers were thinking you know uh, helped to kind of ground and anchor blackness in a way that in this in this '90s post civil rights moment uh, you know we're you know not quite to the promised land you know. Uh, yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I think it provides a, an excellent transition to, to thinking about your second chapter. You know, as you were speaking, one of the things that I, I became interested in was just, you know, the degree to which these artists and writers are using satire as a way to kind of 
to try to put up some kind of barrier between themselves and the way that black politics itself has been sort of subsumed by a neoliberal logic. And so as we turn to Chappelle and thinking about that as being a kind of major sort of tension in his work and also something that you explore in his chapter, um, I guess I'm curious about, I'm curious about the sort of changed focus on, on, on white laughter Right. Um, and you use a, a term consumptive laughter, which I really like quite a bit. And I and you know this, but much of the writing around black comedy um, and black humor is it's about sort of anxiety that white people have over black people's laughter. And so then thinking that in the in the 21st century moment for, for black performers, there's this sort of high anxiety about non-black laughter. I wonder if we could talk about that maybe in relationship to this fear of like neoliberalism having usurped even black politics, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I pushed send on, on the, on the book, uh, right on the eve of him, uh, doing this last stand up routine. And I was just like, why? Um, cause I have so much more stuff that I, uh, I needed to add now, but, um, no, I think, you know, if we can manage to, uh, divorce ourselves from Chappelle of the last, you know, uh, two, three years, uh, and think back to the moment of, of Chappelle show, I think that, you know, uh, Chappelle offers up a number of interesting kind of moments and takes and is able to um, come to his sketch comedy stage as a kind of broad uh, um, representative of of his generation in a way, right? Um, That he was the stoner, uh, you know, offbeat, alternative uh, kind of Gen Xer you know, in a way, um, and that he was able to leverage, I think, one, that buy-in, but two, uh, also uh, the way that he kind of, uh, as Bambi Hagens uh, says, you know, clearly evokes and is this kind of provocateur uh, and and harkens back to somebody like Richard Pryor, right, Um, in terms of the kind of critiques that he would make around race in in his stand-up routines. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, he also comes to this, uh, to the sketch comedy stage on the heels of Chris Rock's show on HBO, uh, obviously on the heels of um, uh, In Living Color, uh, and then, of course, the earlier Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor show. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I, I reference those earlier sketch comedy shows because I think one of the things that was really interesting going back and watching Chappelle uh, was that he was surprised that they were on air for as long as as they were. You know what I mean? I feel like there would be like commercial breaks, like "Oh, we're back," um, or these moments where it's just like, "I guess they, you know, we got another week." Uh, because you know, uh, Richard Wright, uh, Richard Wright, uh, Richard Pryor's uh, sketch comedy show, I think, only lasted four episodes, right? Um, uh, before it was deemed too much for television. And so I think there's one, as Chappelle is kind of reading the room of the early 2000s and, and recognizing kind of the evolution of, of network television, he's also recognizing that there is a lot more space for him to kind of level the critiques that he's leveling that I think black humorists and, and satirists have kind of leveled for a while, um, but that there was a much more kind of uh, I don't know, white audiences had been at that point cultivated in such a way, right, that um, they were able to feel like they could enter into and exit out of whenever they deemed fit uh, one kind of mindless laughter, right? Like, oh my goodness, that's so absurd, right? And the, the, the idea of like what constitutes absurdity in these spaces, right, may be completely different for varying audiences in terms of a of just writing something off, right? Um, but then two, also kind of the meaning making process associated with um, those sketches. And, you know, one of the things that I deeply miss by the time we get to, by the time we get to Key and Peel, right, is that Chappelle would offer up these sketches with these kind of introductions that would allow him 
some level of kind of autonomy around like flavoring the audience's palate, right? Um, so that you didn't just get this thing um, completely uh, in a vacuum, you know what I mean? Um, that you were able to kind of understand the kind of broader cultural resonance and that he anchored the show in particular in a kind of neo-soul aesthetic that lent for this kind of broader uh, kind of articulation of Black authenticity and authority in a way, right? Um, and so, so yeah, and I mean, it, it's interesting to see what that looks like um, in that moment, uh, in precisely the moment where, you know, I think Chappelle becomes increasingly aware of the way that he's expected to speak on a broad range of topics that he doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with speaking on, right? Um, and, and in ways that he's kind of made uh, aware uh, in this uh, contemporary moment. Um, but, but yeah, and so uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see what that looks like. Um, and, 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 and yeah, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's that was great. maybe a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, as you were speaking, I was, I was thinking of so much in, in relationship to Chappelle and I'm trying to, like a thought just kind of left my mind. So I'm trying to hold on to see that it comes back, but I think, mm, Maybe we'll have to return to it. Oh, that's what it was. So I was, I was really sort of, I really loved how you uh, sort of narrated Chappelle's sort of biography and also his sort of evolution within the public sphere, sort of emerging as a stoner, as an awkward kind of skinny black guy whose relationship to blackness wasn't fraught or anything, but certainly wasn't sort of foregrounded in his sort of public and entertainment persona. But then with the show sort of, um, kind of leveraging neo soul and 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 various sort of things to up his authenticity to become. I mean, you called him the voice of his generation, um, or a voice of his generation. I'm, I'm I'm curious about about what Chappelle, what he might have to tell us about something like the new black aesthetic, which um, you mentioned earlier, and particularly that concept of the cultural mulatto. Um, just because as you were speaking, it seemed to me that that's exactly what you were describing. And we don't have to love that word or that term. But I'm just I'm just curious about what you think about that evolution that we get to see in the public sphere. And another figure who's followed the same kind of model is obviously Donald Glover, who emerged first as like token Oreo, played that up, hammed it up, loved that role. And is now sort of reemerged as a neo or a neo soul kind of proto nationalist black man. And it seems, I'm curious about that. And I'm curious about how that's fitting into the demands of the entertainment industry. Because even Donald Glover has made kind of fleeting comments about, well, I learned how to play the game. Right. Right. Yeah. So I just, I, I'm, I don't know if you have, it's not, you don't have to have something. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You know, I'm always reminded in this moment of uh, the little bit that uh, they had almost like an, in an interlude of, uh, of kings of comedy, right? Where you've got uh, these barons of, 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 of like black comedy and you've got Bernie Mac, I think as the one person who hasn't had a show and is begging and pleading to America, like, please give me a show, you know? Uh, I'll, I'll act right, I'll, I'll do what you need me to do. Just, just give me a show. And so um, it's interesting to think about that there are certain iterations of this, right? Um, but that, that's been kind of a long-standing thing, and that black comedy, uh, more broadly, has offered up kind of entree into uh, a kind of public life for 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 black celebrities, black men in particular, um, that affords them this kind of broader broader platform, and that a lot of that um, is like an unabashed uh, <laughs> um, kind of recognition that it comes through one's relationship to a, a broader kind of white America, um, kind of white liberal, um, you know, the ability to allow people, uh, as precisely I said, to enter into and to uh, exit uh, when they see fit in terms of that meaning making and that laughter, I think, uh, has been, uh, you know, it, it, it has offered up a lot in terms of celebrity and financial gain for a number of folks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about as we sort of transition to thinking about your your chapter on on Percival Everett and uh, Sidney Poitier, um, just because you know, I mean, as you said, it's it's kind of interesting to think about the sort of black comic figures who have made it big, especially in the twentieth, like late twentieth, twenty first century, because they are kind of unlike prior in biography, uh, for instance. And I'm thinking about you know all of this sort of satirical work happening at the same time when when we were growing up, you know, comic view was on TV you know, every single night, every single night we have the sort of black, the contemporary Chitlin circuit on television in all American homes, right? Everybody gets beat with their cable subscription. Um, and yet for the most part, those folks aren't breaking through in the ways that someone like Chappelle is or someone like Glover is. And so I'm curious as we sort of transition to thinking about Percival Everett and, and Sidney Poitier, you know, how we can think about Everett's critique and this sort of ongoing, even even as we're sort of critiquing Black masculinity, there's still only being certain kinds of Black men who are permitted into the fold, at least right. the most sort of remunerative fold. <laughs> like, indeed, indeed. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 to, uh, and to think about what that, that third chapter offers up, I think it is in part, you know, and, and again, it goes back to... Um, this idea of consumption, like how much are you willing to kind of give yourself up to being consumed in these ways, right? Um, and and part of the linkage that I try and draw between Sidney Poitier and not Sidney Poitier, and, and Percival Everett's I am not Sidney Poitier, um, is precisely the moments in which these kind of racial overtures and a kind of through an integrationist logic uh, of a lot of Sidney Poitier films um, offers up a particular type of consumption, right? Um, uh, wherein I am not Sidney Poitier, uh, you know, Bartleby Scribner, you know, prefers not to. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, and really thinks through what the differences of these, of these two generations, these two moments, civil rights and post-civil rights, uh, kind of looks like. Um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, the ability of folks to, either be okay with it or not to be okay with it. Um, and I think, you know, for someone like Chappelle, he ultimately ends up leaving the show because he's not okay with it. Um, uh, yeah. And that now has created an entire other line of like kind of black nationalist discourse for him in terms of a different kind of leadership in this, in this post uh, television show moment for Chappelle. But yeah. Yeah. And so just thinking sort of staying with, um, Percival Everett for a bit, but I do have questions about sort of black nationalism and how it's sort of filtered through or not all of this literature. Um, I'm curious about, about that decision of, because it's a problem in satire, right? I mean, because of the long standing history of black people sort of being the butt of jokes of black people being comic fools of black people sort of being caricatured in public, um, satirical language, black satirical language always has a kind of risk embedded in it, right? I mean, really any sort of black representation is read against a backdrop of black caricature. And so I'm curious about what you think of sort of Percival Everett, what he's doing in I Am Not Sidney Poitier, but also his career itself and how it compares to, you know, sort of other black writers and, and performers who you're looking at in your book, because he is someone who intentionally published on small presses, who limits his interview time, who has intentionally not constructed a public persona. Um, and so I just wonder how that maybe plays into all the arguments you're making in, in chapter three also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, uh, love, uh, kind of Everett's writing um, with I am not Sydney Poitier. By the way, if you have a way that you teach this novel, um, I would really love to know how that how to do that because uh, I feel like you've got to watch at least like seven films, uh, you know, in order to get. Do you have a way? <laughs> I do not. You know, I teach yeah. erasure because students. Okay. Erasure is easier for students. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's well, the only and, and you know, it's it's, it's it's a bit. Oh. I am going to teach the trees, though. The trees is really great. It's not quite okay. a satire, but it's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've not finished it yet. Uh, I've started it. Um, it's an easy book to teach once you get to, yeah. It's, okay, okay, we're good. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, yeah, no, uh, and so, 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 yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's very interesting about, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I paired the two together, right? Why I really wanted to think about excuse me, uh, I am not uh, Sidney Poitier and Percival Everett kind of more broadly, right? Um, uh, 
There was a moment early on in the project where I was thinking about the linkages between protagonist and writer. And I think one of the things that's really beautiful about Everett's writing is that he's not afraid to put himself in the text in particular ways, right? Um, there are some clear kind of, 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 of reverberations from him uh, in his protagonist in Erasure, um, Thelonious Monk, right? Uh, but then also, like, he's literally, uh, there is a Professor Everett in uh, I Am Not Sidney Poitier, right? And so, you know, you start talking about meta uh, text and all of these other things, right? Uh, I, I appreciate the fact that Everett is constantly, I feel like, pushing whatever that looks like for him. Um, to your earlier points about uh, his kind of proximity to, to, to Black literature and writing in, in general, you know, uh, he came and did a reading uh, at Ohio State while I was there doing my graduate work. And I, you know, mustered up this question about um, thinking about, you know, African-American satire in terms of the broader African-American literary tradition and felt like I had asked him this wonderful question. And in a very kind of Everett way, he said, well, I don't consider myself to be part of the, the African-American canon, um, the tradition in this way, right? Uh, and then when I pressed him to like think about satire's more broader kind of place within the canon, um, he quite frankly said, you know, that's for me, the critic, to answer. And so in many ways, um, kind of set me flowing, uh, if I can borrow that language, uh, for the book itself. And so uh, it was a very early moment as I was thinking through humor and satire that I had this kind of moment uh, uh, at this reading with, with Everett. And it was, it was really like, okay, well then, you know, because I think part of the, what is both beautiful and frustrating ab about writing about satire is that so often we get caught up in intentionality, right? Um, because you think, you know, satire is a space where it has to, you, we have to foreground and center uh, what the writer's, you know, intent was throughout all of this, right? And, and, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, offer up space or maybe some people would think to think about, well, what is the, what does this also produce? What is the byproduct? What is, what is this thing that's over here as well? And so, one of the things that's very interesting about uh, I Am Not Sidney Poitier versus Sidney Poitier, and that I, I really appreciated going back and watching these Sidney Poitier novels. For those of you who don't know, right, uh, Everett's novel, I Am Not Sidney Poitier, is kind of a mashup of Sidney Poitier films and plot lines through films. Uh, and the protagonist, I Am Not Sidney, goes through episodically kind of these various plot lines and, and kind of pivots to think through what a more contemporary post-civil rights kind of uh, logic and aesthetic would look like um, that maybe differentiates from what Sidney Poitier uh, right, does in the films. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the one uh, film, right, that uh, Baldwin and I Am Not Your Negro uh, and Royal Peck in the, in the documentary kind of highlights uh, of Poitier's and... Uh, in his film, The Defiant Ones, right, with, with Tony Curtis, right, where wherein Tony Curtis and uh, 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 Poitier's character uh, are, you know, it, it's kind of a getaway uh, kind of uh, theme wherein they're being transported. They're both prisoners and uh, uh, handcuffed to one another. They're, they're being transported and they uh, and, and, and the bus gets in an accident on the way from one uh, prison to another. Uh, and the two of them are on the lamb, right, for the for for the majority of the film. And they eventually, you know, they have to get past their own uh, racial, uh, you know, issues and, uh, you know, white supremacy. Uh, and finally, they get the handcuffs cuffs off. And by the end of the novel, there's a, a train coming. Uh, and they recognize that if they can make it to this train, then they'll get away scot-free. Uh, Sidney Poitier's character makes the train. Tony Curtis just barely misses it and is reaching out to, uh, to Poitier, uh, at, at which point in an act of uh, illogical uh, kind of solidarity, uh, Poitier jumps off the, uh, the train, right? And so um, the, this is what I mean by these kind of racial overtures or this kind of integrationist moment. Uh, and, you know, 
uh, Everett puts this moment in I Am Not Sydney Poitier and uh, Not Sydney, uh, who is the character's name, right? Um, uh, has no problem with uh, walking over his sleeping uh, white companion onto the uh, to head towards the train and, and then leave. <laughs> and we kind of, uh, you know, episodically uh, move towards the next place in the novel. Um, but I, I say that to say that there were a lot of ways that Sidney Poitier's body, both uh, on film and within the kind of paratextual space of the film and trailers and, and other spaces, is consumed, um, you know, that, that he has to offer up his body, um, uh, you know, arguably by extension, his dignity, and he's routinely put in these uh, in these kind of white worlds, right? Um, uh, and and not Sydney just decides not to do that, right? Um, and we can think about this in terms of the oddity of like class dynamics, because not Sydney is also extremely wealthy throughout the text, and and all kinds of things. Um, but uh, it, it's it's meant to be a kind of clear kind of articulation of a post-civil rights kind of aesthetic and logic through the, a, a sense of negation almost, right, um, in terms of his relationship with, with Sidney Poitier. And I find that that's very important for the, the work of, like, I'm trying to get to and played out because there's so many ways that um, there are even these unintended uh, uh, ways that, that Black bodies and thoughts are still being consumed in this moment. Uh, I was really uh, taken up uh, with Vincent Woodard's uh, work on consumption when I was thinking about this and thinking about kind of the broader kind of metaphorical um, ways that uh, Black men's bodies uh, are, um, are are taken up. But, uh, but, but yeah, and so, so, so we, get, we get to a moment where here, uh, Sidney Cordier, um, you know, it's no longer being consumed in those same ways in this contemporary moment. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm happy that you shared that, that story of Percival Everett coming to Ohio state. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a disappointing answer and response. You know, um, he's, you know, I, I'm, as I was thinking through your answer, you know, I mean, a part of it seems like on one hand, you know, Everett's played this game his entire career where people will ask his influence and he'll say all these sort of far field disparate texts, but always sort of one of them is a black text. And there's one interview kind of very early where he sort of admits that he's writing in a tradition and that tradition includes Ellison. Um, But he sort of, his answers to these questions kind of change across his career. And a part of it, it sounds to me like, you know, after hearing you speak is is a desire to not have his work consumed in a certain way. And he's written about this a bit in Signing to the Blind and other places. Um, but it's still a kind of a frustrating answer. Um, but it, yeah, I, you know, just to give him a, a break, I think maybe a part of it is like, you know, Everett is someone who seems, as do all of these writers, I think, very aware of the tropes that are available to talk about Black life and dislikes all of them. Um, but just in our, you know, kind of remaining time, I do want to touch on your last chapter and thinking about sort of anger. And, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, sort of all of these different writers and performers, um, we're also seeing how they're sort of individual, how they as sort of individuals sort of also inflect their satire and how their satire is able to speak and circulate. Um, in the broader cultural sphere. And so I'm curious about anger and satire kind of generally across your project, but also why maybe figures like Key and Pill, who do have a kind of strained relationship, we'll say, to a Black consuming public, um, why it is that maybe they're able to express anger a little bit more easily than these other folks, because Paul Beatty, I mean, Paul Beatty's work, I think, is fairly acerbic, um, and it flew under the radar for a great deal of time. I mean, the sellout winning the Man Booker was a kind of coup, you know, I mean, surprise, you know, I remember buying Paul Beatty's books in like, you know, 2013 for five bucks. I mean, I'm sure you remember this too, you know, you could get all these books very cheaply. Um, and so I'm curious about maybe Key and Pill and why they're able to do the kinds of work you see them doing in their satire. Um, cause they do seem like exceptions to me. Mm, mm, to some mm. Yeah, no. And, uh, you know, I think part of what I think that chapter does as the kind of fourth chapter, um, in the text is really think about kind of where we've come from 
uh, a, a kind of uh, Dave Chappelle to a Key and Peele kind of moment in terms of politics, in terms of uh, kind of social, cultural resonance, and uh, dare I say, even like a, a, a like an ethics, right? Um, <clears throat> because you know, Chappelle, Chappelle seems to be governed by a particular type of ethics, and has said that you know he, he was frustrated at what is it like the three or four years that. Uh, he and Peel, like watching these other people essentially do a show, right? Um, I think for Key and Peel, uh, yeah, their first episode came out, I think, in January 2012 on the eve of Obama's second, uh, second, um, uh, yeah, uh, second term. And so for them, it was, it was really their ability, you know, unapologetically in their introductions in the, in that first episode to really talk about one themselves as as being biracial um two offering up that kind of biraciality as the ability that allows them to do everything um and maybe you know in parentheses and do nothing um you know what i mean uh, as a particular type of logic and then and, and and then also then the ways that they would become a particular type of of space um of you know, I think biraciality uh, during uh, Obama's second term, which I think is really important, right, for the ways that um, mixed-ish, uh, if I can use that, right, uh, is, is was beginning to circulate in in newer ways that um, had had earlier kind of. There is clearly a kind of longer historical kind of narrative around um, uh, around multiracial uh, subjects, but. Uh, that in that particular moment took on its own particular flavor, specifically around uh, its linkages to the Oval Office and and Barack Obama in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, just because we're, we're we're almost out of time, I wonder if there are any sort of closing thoughts you want to leave our listeners with. Yeah. I mean, I'm so happy that in the conclusion, I was able to really kind of meditate on what I see as the growth of like maybe even a post played out uh, kind of moment, right? So if, if, if the trope of the of the race man is, is played out in a particular way, um, then kind of where does that leave us? Uh, and thinking about Issa Rae's work, um, I don't know if you've seen Jared Carmichael's most recent standup, um, Rothaniel, um, just really finding these kind of other these alternative sites of black comedic space wherein vulnerability and tenderness can kind of still be foregrounded in a particular way but not necessarily one at the expense of of black women or queer folk uh and two in a way that doesn't necessarily have to function alongside this kind of larger trope of of black men's leadership and so um it's been really i think nice to see um uh, kind of, I, I think we're like in another kind of moment uh, of exploding uh, black satirical um, production right now, and so it's it's really good to see how it's getting taken up in these in these various spaces. I think diasporically, um, but also um, uh, also here. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Manning. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs>